Today we blow some bubbles, slam some poetry, and wipe away some tears. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, conversations with a few friends, Hugh Weber, Joshua Bennett, and Pierce Freelon. We go from dude to dad, from spoken word to the White House, and from tears to ping pong. Today's show brings back conversations with some pretty fun fathers, and we will explore themes of connection and mentorship. We'll ask what it means to be a dad, especially a black father in America, and we will close our show with a musical request for a little help with our work. We've all got a little too much work right now, don't we? Let's get started. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. We're taking a beat today to surface a few of our recent conversations with dads. These are conversations about love and joy, bubbles and tears and grief. And these are all stories that I got comments on after they aired. Thank you, listeners, like you told me. I learned about being a good father. I rethought how grief works in my life. I miss my friend, and it was good to hear his voice. Let's start there with Hugh Weber. Hugh was a creative. He was the publisher of the magazine The Great Discontent. He was the author of a book called Dude to Dad. He died not too long after this interview. And he leaves behind a wife, two children, and a whole host of friends. Here's Hugh Weber. So I want to start with this magazine that I have in my hands. And it's almost difficult to call it a magazine because it is a coffee table book. It's perfect bound. The pages are thick and creamy and textured. The photographs are, are vibrant and full page, and the stories and interviews are in-depth about everything from creativity to vision for the future. It's called The Great Discontent. It's more than a magazine, though. That's right. It's, it's an artifact of a conversation. Right? Right. It's an artifact of a beautiful human dialogue, which is so impossibly hard to capture in, in, in a medium or in a time kind of space other than immediate and, and intimate. Yeah. And so you, you, you fight for that textured, nuanced, human, imperfect, but also beautiful mm -hmm. and also joy-filled uh, conversation to capture it for other people. I mean, I think this is the journey. We, we last cross paths yeah. uh, talking about potluck societies and odas and all, all of those things that we were able to do together in the past. And those two were about saying, I have been given an extraordinary gift of having conversations that few, you know this personally, but yeah. that few get, that to talk to incredible thinkers and creators, but just really deep, complex, beautiful human beings. And how can we share that? And we can share that via radio. Audio is an incredible medium for that. Mm -hmm. um, and we can share that via podcasts and other formats. But print is one of those things, too, that when you hold it in your hands, when, when you feel it, you feel like you're sharing experience with other people that are holding it in their hands, right? Mm -hmm. You feel like it's not just you and the, the two people having the conversation, but also maybe the person down the road or the person that you can hand it to, the person that can feel it in the same way. One of the things we explored in depth during the pandemic, because I, you know, I run a, a, a community design studio called We Must Be Bold, and the work that we do is to create those kind of intimate, connected experiences. 
And when we couldn't do that in person, we started mm -hmm. to play with things like scent and taste and touch. And so we run a community uh, called Cheeselandia for uh, the dairy farmers <laughs> of Wisconsin. And there are thousands of passionate cheese lovers around the country that had been getting together in person uh, before 2020. And so we started doing things like sending them all the same piece of cheese or sending them all a candle to light in their space or sending them all something to hold in their hands and feel the texture of. So when we were talking about those things separately, mm -hmm. they had something really tactile and tangible and shared that they could do together. So to me, The Great Discontent tries to capture in a print form some of that same vibe. If I could spray a, a scent on this, yeah. on this beautiful magazine, I'd probably do it. If I could send it with a candle or a piece of cheese, I would probably do it. Um, <laughs> but this is as close as we can get uh, okay. in a, in a print-only format. So I want to pick up something that I remember you doing years before this, which was mm. the bubble parade. Right. Make a thread for creative people to say something simple as saying, I'm going to go with my kids. We're going to invite people to walk down Main Street in our hometown or in the town in which we live. We're going to blow bubbles and we're going to bring people joy. That's it. That's what we're going to yeah. do. And now fast forward five years, seven years, however long it's been, and say, now I'm doing this and I'm thinking about sending people the same scent experience and the same taste experience during a pandemic, which I never foresaw coming, and uh, we're in community still. What's the thread for you as a creative individual? Yeah, I think, I think looking backwards, which gives us some clarity of sight, I think yeah. it's easier than if you had asked me that at the beginning. Um, I think it comes back to this question of what matters most. And, and the thing I've decided matters most for me, or at least the art that I can bring to the world, the creativity that I can bring to the world, is that moments matter. That, mm -hmm. that taking an hour to walk along the, the falls, which is where we did the last one. I'm looking out here thinking about it with yeah. such, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. But taking an hour to walk with your kids, blow some bubbles and eat a popsicle, that's all that matters. It's definitely what matters most to me. Let's stop right there. What matters most to you? What do you do when you stop and spend just a few moments with your family? When was the last time you did that? When is the next time you will freeze time like that again? You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Joshua Bennett is one of my favorite poets. The first time I talked with him, he spoke about freestyling with his infant son in the kitchen. That reminded me of my dad. Not because my dad ever offered poetry to me. He tended toward the humorous limerick, more than original verse, of course. But because that image of love between father and child resonates with me still. So this isn't really a conversation about fatherhood you're about to hear, but it is a conversation about mentorship, literary leadership, language. Here is Joshua Bennett talking about his latest book. It's called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. Talk about this um, when you work as a professor. I think you're now at MIT the, the heat in a poem. When students read poetry or hear poetry, sometimes maybe it's harder if you read it on the page to not just say, what does that mean? Why do you sort of uh, guide students in that direction? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And thank you, too. I feel like that story just came out via MIT News a couple <laughs> of days ago. So yeah. thank you for uh, always on top of the research. It means a lot. So yeah, that's actually a, a teaching tactic that I got from a, a workshop with Terrence Hayes that I took many years ago, uh, I think around 2015. 
And I just remember being so struck by the question because you're right, it's very different from what does this poem mean? What does it make you think of? Where's the heat is really something much more elemental, right? It's asking you what, what strikes you about this poem. Sometimes I follow up that question with uh, what is strange, what is beautiful, what is familiar? And I really just want that to be a, a gesture of invitation, right? A way to say, you don't have to have all the terminology right <laughs> right now. Just tell me what's moving you, what jumps out to you, and let's begin the conversation there. One of the things that struck me about your life, because this is a cultural history of spoken word, but it's also very much your history, and it begins quite young with hearing people in church, for example, I think a lot of people around here, so before we go into that experience for you, a lot of people around here, if they're like me, had zero experiences of that growing up. Even in church, the sermons were read where I went to worship. So you would see a pastor behind a lectern, and there would be a sermon that he, mm -hmm. usually he, had written out and would then deliver in a way that was, I'm not criticizing it, I'm just saying I never had that experience um, what is right. spoken word then? Oh, wow. Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, spoken word for me, uh, at least for the purposes of the book, but I think this is the way I thought about it in some ways for a long time, is about poetry that is written to be recited, right? And sometimes even it's, it's read aloud from a piece of paper, but quite often it, it's memorized. And the idea is that spoken word is poetry that treats the art form like it's always a social occasion. Right? And it also treats language like something that is perhaps most beautiful when it's given to the air. And so I, I grew up around a, a range of different preachers growing up, but most of them, yeah, you had the sense that maybe even if they had a couple of notes, most of what they were doing was some combination of you know, memorization, improvisation, and then uh, something that was maybe almost untrackable <laughs> or, or unsayable, something numinous, kind of just pulling language from the air and leaving room for for the spirit to take them in whatever direction it wanted or needed to. So for me, spoken word brings together all of the influences, not just in my own life, but in the archives that I, I turned to. I mean, these were people who were Shakespeare scholars. Some of them were playwrights. Some of them were preachers or the sons of preachers. This was the case with us, Saul Williams, or the daughters of preachers. And I was fascinated by that, that, that all of us were drawn to this truly ancient art form but that in the form of something like spoken word or in a game like Poetry Slam takes on this uh, distinctly modern shape and texture. That's really what I was trying to trace in the book. Yeah. So speaking of Shakespeare scholars, uh, tell us about Miguel Algarin and <laughs> how he, you know, he's not a bridge from, you know, uh, the, uh, the academy to the street. He is something like entirely new in some ways. And you meet him and you don't, you know, he shows up in your life. And you're right. not, you know, you didn't necessarily know every, you know, everything about him. Tell me about Miguel. Yeah, I mean, I first met Miguel when I was a teenage boy, mm. right? And, and as far as I knew, he was just a very thoughtful audience member at the New York <laughs> Poets Cafe. And at the time, nobody took me aside to say, well, hey, Josh, you know, the guy started the place, right? <laughs> that it began in the mid-70s in his living room. And then in part because he had, you know, the day job that I have now, right? He was a professor, uh, people were staying in his living room a bit too late. You know, people were staying until midnight, until one or two in the morning. And so he made the decision that they, they needed a brick and mortar space in which to recite their beautiful poems and beautiful plays. And so Miguel Algarin founded, you know, the New Eurekan Poets Cafe alongside 19 other poets and playwrights, some of 
whom you might know, you know, people like Ntozaki Shange, you know, uh, the incredible black feminist poet and playwright, people like Miguel Pinheiro, the incredible uh, Puerto Rican poet and playwright, and, and many others, people like Lucky Cienfuegos, you know, Tato Laviera. I mean, a really incredible, diverse group of folks, a number of whom I also interviewed for the, the book, like the poet Sandra Marie Estevez. And really, you know, Miguel was someone, I love what you said there. It's not so much, I think, that he was a bridge, but rather that his life was, was an intersection, right? In his own language, Shakespeare was a New Yorican to him, right? That Shakespeare had played a part in his life, and he saw himself as working for Shakespeare uh, in the same way that Shakespeare worked for him. He taught Shakespeare classes, you know, at Rutgers and at Brooklyn College. And at night, he hosted this, this living room salon and that eventually helped create the New Eurekan scene that so many of us knew and loved. And he, he really was a polymath like few others. You know, he was able to pull in kind of the poets and the playwrights while doing that, that work himself and holding all of it together. What did you learn from him about being a slam poet? He didn't give you, you say in the book, you know, a step one, step two, step three, or, or a critique on a certain poem, but he gave you a lot through feedback all the same. What did he offer you? I mean, one, it meant a lot to be remembered because there were also times, and this isn't so much in the book, but when I came back as a, you know, a 20-something, fresh out of college, and, uh, and Miguel was still there. And it meant a lot to know that he remembered me or any of my performances. The Miguel that I rediscovered through the archival research for this book, though, I think taught me something else, which is that um, it's as important to be a, a conduit <laughs> as it is to be a, a kind of conductor, right? I think it's easy to think of him as, as kind of the, the leader of, of a, a certain version of the New Yorkian school, but I think it also seemed like he imagined himself as just someone who was trying to make space for his gifted friends to shine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an incredible lesson uh, for an educator, for a writer, to say as much as, you know, I hope people love my books and <laughs> love it when I get on stage and recite my work, part of my job is actually to sometimes step back and just create space for other people to do their good work in the world. And I think Miguel really was a model for that mm-hmm. during his life on Earth. I love that. I think we spoke about this before. It's a more of a, a well-known story that you're an undergrad and you are invited to perform at the White House for President Barack Obama, then President Obama, and uh, the First Lady and other dignitaries. And on page nine, this early in the book, in the introduction, you say, I learned something fundamentally true about why being a poet was important to me and why I would have to engage with this art form for the rest of my life. It left me nowhere to hide. It forced me to confront my guilt, my pain, and all my shortcomings. It demanded that I give an account. <laughs> what does it do for the listener then to be in the room while the poet is carrying that kind of responsibility into the space? My hope, you know, I think at the best, we can be a mirror for each other, right? One of the, the most beautiful things I think about that experience at the White House is that they, they videotape. And part of what that meant was that for the next 10 years, I got letters and uh, emails uh, and inbox messages saying, this poem helped me fix my relationship with my father Hmm. or with my big sister or with my students or my my best friend. And I never would have imagined that (laughs) when I was on stage 
as a 20 year old, as a college junior, I was just trying to remember the words. You know, yeah. this part wasn't yeah. on stage, but my mother had gone over the poem three or four times with me before I touched the stage that night. And I never could have fathomed that it would go out over the internet and that uh, hundreds of thousands of people would see it and that it would mean anything to them. But I do think in some ways that experience really does reflect what poetry makes possible, right? Which is that an individual person's story can actually reflect and refract uh, out in a, in a million different directions and, and reach people in a bunch of different ways and, and mean things to them that that single poet couldn't imagine in advance. Yeah. And that brings us to the digital revolution. And we just have about a minute left. But I said at the top of the hour, like, I grew up with none of this. I am much older when I even know what slam poetry is or when I hear anything that would pass as spoken word. But now, today, through YouTube, through the Internet, you can't stop it. And it is um, that is a powerful, powerful thing. What's the future of slam poetry, of spoken word online? Oh, that's, hmm. I don't know. This is so yeah. interesting. I was just talking to my friend Will over lunch, and I was saying one of the beautiful and terrifying and compelling things I've been thinking about the future recently is that it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Uh, we're always making it together in a blur of a seemingly infinite presence. And so it's hard to say. It, I mean, I imagine it'll live perhaps on TikTok or a number of, of other forms. I mean, there, there's quite a bit of, of an audience for spoken word in spaces like TikTok and still on YouTube. But I think young people will do things we can't possibly imagine with this form. You know, I think the venues of the future will in some ways look completely different, but may very well look just like Miguel Algoin's living room salon. And wouldn't yeah. that be something? Yeah. You know, I actually think that, especially when I talk to my students, I mean, they're very much in the pursuit of something that feels real, mm. that feels textured and undeniable and transcendent. And so my sense is that actually the, the future of spoken word might be something like a throwback. It, it might be the kind of intimate venues again, people's homes, people's backyards, people's uh, spaces of worship. And I think we're going to see poetry that, uh, you know, here I'm, I'm riffing a bit on, on yeah. there, you know, but poetry that's made for the measure of the world, for the problems that, that they're facing, you know, and the joys too. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Okay, some interviews on this show have big reach, and I have had multiple people tell me how happy they were to be introduced to Pierce Freelon. And I'm happy to surface this conversation for you today. Pierce Freelon is an author, an educator, a Grammy-nominated musician. He joined In the Moment when he was in town for a residency with the Levitt he shared his thoughts on being a dad, the portrayal of black culture in the media. We even talked a little about Kobe Bryant. Take a listen. Pierce Freeland, welcome to the In the Moment Studios here in Sioux Falls. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I love Sioux Falls so far, and this studio is awesome. And you have met some of our kids, <laughs> right? Have. You're already reading stories to them and working with them. Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to. Sure. Uh, well, I was at Ace Academy. Not only were we reading storybooks together, but we were also making beats. Nice. Um, so if you could imagine a room full of, you know, elementary, preschool-age kids on like an electronic drum machine, you know, making boom, ching, boom, boom, ching, making their own little beats, and then rapping about things that they care about. Yeah. This one kid's like, um, 
I'm on a bicycle on the sidewalk. I'm on a bicycle on the sidewalk. Just super cute. Another girl wrote a song about her favorite food, potatoes. Oh, nice. It was so cute. <laughs> so uh, the kids of Sioux Falls are cool with me. They were amazing. Um, I was at the YMCA yesterday. We did a summer camp at Augie. Like, we've just been all over the place with Levitt. And um, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know the community through your kids. Yeah, that's what Levitt is all about. It's not just the stage. It's not just the performance. It is this deep connection with community and music and inviting people to participate in it. I'm so glad. And your work, um, you do so much. Okay, let's just get to the fact that we're not going to get to everything that Pierce Freelon is. <laughs> But I have just a passion for children's music and mm. children's literature. And when my daughter, she's all grown up now, but when she was little, it was those children's CDs. I felt like I was reparenting myself mm. in some ways, and I was also learning how to be a parent mm. because a song would come up about kindness or a mm -hmm. song would come up about, um, you know, riding your bicycle. Mm -hmm. And it just helped me figure out what she was thinking yeah. at the same time. Why is why is music that's family friendly, um, not vapid music, but really smart, layered, intelligent music for kids? Why is that important to you? Well, it's important to me as a parent. Like you, I've, yeah. I've raised little ones who are getting older. My son just graduated middle school, which oh, is wow. mind-boggling. Oh. It's like a high schooler. <laughs> Uh, Here it comes. Everybody <laughs> says it goes fast, and but it's so true. Um, mm. But, you know, raising little kids, they're sponges. They absorb mm. everything. And uh, it, was, it wasn't until I became a parent that I started listening critically to the music that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so there was, like, a lot of hip-hop that I was listening to that, you know, I like the beat, I like the lyrics, I'm rapping along. Now all of a sudden I'm a parent, I've got two kids on the back, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me turn the volume <laughs> down on that particular uh, song, yeah. you know, and I'm like, well, what can I play that is a reflection of my culture that has the same feel that makes you wanna, you know, groove in your seat while you're driving them to the grocery store, you know, but, but has lyrics that are appropriate and ideas and topics that are relevant to their lives. And I didn't find a lot, not a lot in the hip-hop space, not a yeah, lot right. from <clears throat> from the perspective of a father. There's a lot of uh, children's musicians who are women um, and children's picture book authors uh, that are women. And then, <clears throat> you know, there's this weird paradox where, like, you know, people are surprised to see, like, uh, fathers as primary caregivers and as nurturers. Um, I just remember going to the park and people would be like, oh, you're such a great dad. Look at you with your little kitty. <laughs> you know, your kid's in a backpack and you're pushing the stroller. Aren't you just a great dad? I'm like, uh, I'm just, this is kind of the bare minimum, actually. You know, yeah. we're just out and about. Just like nobody's giving my wife props when, <laughs> when she's like doing basic mom stuff. But there's, the, I think it's because there's a dearth of, we don't see it often yeah. in the media. So... For me, as a children's music artist, I wanted to show fatherhood and vulnerability through fatherhood, playfulness, uh, caregiving, as a dad, as a black father, you know, um, particularly with black masculinity and the stereotypes associated with it, kind of nurturing, loving, goofball isn't really in the yeah. equation as much as it should be. Yeah. So that's what um, I just noticed when I started 
writing and releasing songs that like, wow, there's really nothing out here that's like this. Did that mean there was a, an opening for you that you were able to step into, or did you have to convince other people, the gatekeepers, that there was a need that needed to be filled? Well, you know, I'm lucky. I come from a creative and, dare I say, audacious family. I didn't ask anyone for permission. I showed up <laughs> in my fullness unapologetically, mm. and, you know, and it was embraced. Um, and I think that I, I, I released my first children's music album in 2020. The timing was really interesting. I think there was a moment for dads that year for a couple of reasons. Mm. There was a, a short film called Hair Love, which is also yep. a book uh, by Matthew A. Cherry, uh, who's the Oscar winner, right? Oscar yeah. winner, yeah, yeah, Oscar winner that year. And that was a story about a, a black father, you know, and not, you know, not like, I don't know, like I grew up with, um, you know, shows like The Cosby Show and, you know, Family Matters, and they had these older black fathers who were physicians. And, you know, the this guy in Hair Love was like a young dad with locks, like me. He had tattoos on his arms. I related to this dude. And yeah. here he is, like, trying to figure out his daughter's hair. And it was an Oscar winner, and I felt seen, you know, for the first time. I had never seen a dad as a primary giver in a Disney-type style uh, animation before. Um, you know, mom nowhere to be found until the end of the until the end of the episode. And also that year, this was twenty twenty. That was the year Kobe Bryant tragically passed away yeah. in the helicopter accident yeah. uh, with his daughter. And I remember seeing, you know, throughout the media, there was like tons of images of Kobe nurturing his daughter, showing her basketball, you know, reading her books and and being caring. And for the previous, you know, 20 years, we saw a lot of Kobe dunking, you know, mm -hmm. being very masculine and Mamba mentality. But because of the nature of this particular tragedy, uh, the media was all of a sudden flooded with this fatherhood, this intimate, close, soft, yeah. black masculinity. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't, it's not that that version of him didn't exist. It's just that the media isn't as interested in telling that story. Yeah. Um, so that happened to be the year that I released DAD, and I feel like in the zeitgeist, there was a yearning for, you know, this was also the summer of George Floyd. There was a yearning for black men to be seen as whole human beings that include that softness mm. um, that comes with being a parent. Um, at least that's how I was parented and how my dad and his dad and his dad, you know, they were, they were loving and, yeah. uh, and yeah, we just, I didn't see that as much in the media and I felt like the timing of the album, my first album really resonated with, uh, you know, a moment in yeah. American pop culture. Yeah. So here we are just ahead of Father's Day and I'm sure some people are listening and thinking about their complicated relationships with their father but you and I have both lost our fathers. Mm -hmm. And so for us, Father's Day has a different kind of celebratory nature, but mm -hmm. also this, this pairing with grief. And yeah. your mother, Nina Freelon, has a, a just profound podcast called Great Grief, which mm -hmm. I would highly recommend to anybody, um, where she has conversations with grief that I sit down and I'm like, yeah, no, I haven't done that yet. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yep, Nina, I needed to hear that because that <laughs> is what I've been avoiding you know, for these few years. Um, 
as you approach your own fatherhood and you approach your own father, who was a well-known architect, who was a giant in his community, mm -hmm. who died of ALS, you watched him lose his voice. Mm -hmm. You walked through that anticipatory grief with him. Like, how do you approach Father's Day now from where you stand? Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned my mom's podcast. You know, the, the lessons that she offered, that she learned through her grieving are also lessons that, that were a part of our family and the culture of how we moved through my yeah. dad's from diagnosis, you know, to death and afterwards. And I, I feel, honestly, genuine enthusiasm about Father's Day. I feel his presence daily. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't, it doesn't evoke a sense of like, uh, you know, I think of grief as love. It is a version of love. In fact, if you don't feel grief when someone dies, <laughs> that's because the relationship wasn't close. If you were super close, then the grief is actually an expression. It's a part of love. The depth and the width of your relationship is reflected in the, in the feeling of loss when they're gone. So that is sitting with it sitting with the loss, looking at it, dancing with it, engaging with it, and recognizing it as love fills my heart with gratitude, mm. you know? And that's, that's what I feel. I'm looking forward to being with my dad on Father's Day, <laughs> um, you know, energetically. I know uh, he's with me in spirit. I feel his energy when I look in the mirror, when I uh, feel myself uh, pulling some of the phrases that used to annoy me as a kid, and I'm using those same phrases on my kids, put down the ding-dong remote. He would say ding-dong. Ding that was like his expletive replacer. And the other day, I was at the ki I was in the kitchen with the kids, and I told my son to put down the ding-dong something. And I was like, oh, Dad. Here you are. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, like, okay, nice to see you, Dad. Way to, way to show up in, uh, you know, in a tense moment to bring some levity and remind me that, You'll always be with me, yeah. And uh, and that that's because I love him, and I still love him, and I am grateful for everything that he gave me. So I'm looking forward to Father's Day. When you when you make music for children, you want to weave in. I've heard you say an attitude of gratitude, mm -hmm. boundaries. Yep. No is a love word. No is I a have love word. Not heard that before. Ooh. That's nice stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't know, some of that's new to me. I want to say some of it's Fred Rogers. Um, some of it's just, you know, being human. But some of it is a brand new. Some mm. of it feels very contemporary to me. Um, what is important in children's music without being pedantic or heavy-handed to help kids feel empowered to say no you know, to have bodily autonomy, to yeah. have, to know their own thoughts, to yeah. create something and say, that is, that is my song about a bicycle and therefore it can be in the world. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you help kids become audacious? Yeah. Like you and your family are. Well, you know, it's interesting. So in my time here in Sioux Falls, Ace Academy was the first and that was littles, yeah. right? Like small kids. Yeah. And then uh, we went to a middle school uh, where there was a summer camp, and those kids were, you know, 12, 11, 10, mm -hmm. older. And the kids at ACE, very audacious, 
fearless. They popped up, they made beats, they grabbed the mic, they did lyrics, they laughed, had a ball. By the time we got with the middle schoolers, there was a lot more trepidation, there was a lot more self-consciousness and reluctance to engage. Yeah. So I don't think our job as parents is to teach kids to be audacious. They're, they are that way by their nature. Yeah. The key is to nurture it, it's to support it, it's to allow them to feel so loved that they're not afraid to be themselves, especially in front of their peers. Mm -hmm. which becomes harder at the older they get as they become more self-aware. Um, you know, how do I really feel comfortable in my own skin? And my parents did a great job of that. I think the number one key is the same thing as the grief. It's love. If you love up on your kids and they feel confident in themselves, then they will feel um, bold enough to be themselves uh, just like, that that intrinsic boldness of the of the younger mm -hmm. kids. These are kids who probably know who George Floyd is. These mm. are kids who are probably never going to forget COVID mm -hmm. and how it impacted their lives. Um, when we talk about loss or big emotions for kids, I mean losing a favorite toy, losing mm -hmm. a friend mm -hmm. who moved away, yeah. um, losing the daylight when it's time to go to bed. Right. These can feel huge to them. Yeah. How in your music do you help kids deal with the big stuff? Yeah. So uh, I have a song, not on my album. This is my friend uh, uh, Mills Trill's album. We have a song called Let Me Have My Feelings. <laughs> and I like that. Ooh, it's a good one. And you know, and my daughter Stella, I will say she taught me this. Um, you know, Stella is a lot more emotive than I am. And my inclination when there is a meltdown is like, get it together. We're not going to have a meltdown in the middle of this grocery store. And she's just like, I can't control <laughs> when these big feelings are going right. to hit me. Like, you need to, you need to be here with me. Like, you're either with me or against me. <laughs> That's what the feelings <laughs> are telling. And I had to learn over time that this is how she's asking to be cared for. Mm. So interestingly enough, uh, the other day, uh, she was having a meltdown, a whole meltdown. She and my wife were going at it. And I said, and I had a moment of like, oh, let me get in and fix this. And I had to pump the brakes for a second. I said, oh, yeah. wait, nope, tried that. Let me actually just be with her in her feelings. Mm. So I sat down on the couch, I put my arm around her, she wept into my, you know, <laughs> shoulder, and, you know, I was just kind of humming and rocking, you know, and, and she let it out as I was rubbing her back, and she was venting, and I let her vent, and I said, hey, you wanna play some ping pong? <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I serve first? I said, you can serve first, let's go upstairs and play ping pong. We went up, we played ping pong, you know, 30 minutes later, she had a poofy yeah. face, but she was like, she had, yeah. was able to re-regulate. And then the next day we talked about, you know, we did, I did the parenting. I didn't just leave the inappropriate aspects of her behavior. Some of the things she was saying were a little out of pocket. I had to address it. But, you know, if you try to address that kind of thing in the moment, they're not going to hear you. They're in their feelings at that moment. At least she wouldn't have. Right. So it's even as a from a parenting tool, it is more effective to attempt to reach them when their, you know, blood pressure is lower, when the adrenaline is out of their blood, when they've 
when they're able to breathe, you know, then they can actually hear what you have to say and can engage you on the things that, that they need to learn. Um, but in that moment, yeah, let me have my feelings. The song rings in my ear now when I think about um, parenting her in particular. My son is a little different, but, yeah. you know, that that let me have my feelings piece has been something that even I didn't learn that until after the song. I wrote the song because it was like, you know, but, you know, practicing what you preach isn't so easy. Right. Um, so I learned after the song that like, oh, this is what I was writing about and singing about. Like, ooh, you know, it's tough in the moment um, sometimes, for me at least. So yeah, I think that's a big lesson um, is, to, is to let kids feel, let them know that they're safe to feel yeah. however they feel with you. You mentioned earlier children's books, maybe not seeing yourself reflected, and and you're two. You have two children's books. Yeah, two children's books. Yep. Um, There's some outdoor themes. There's some camping. We're gonna go fishing. Like that is another really important thing that often people don't see in children's literature Mm -hmm. is just spending time in nature and saying, "Why was that something that you wanted to address in your book?" Yeah. um, Well, you touched on something not just important in the children's space, but I'll, I'll just go. Uh, to, to just to underscore me as a as a black father, I think there are um, certain stereotypes about black folks as primitive as um, you know uneducated you know that stem from enslavement and before um, where you know European colonists were looking at Africa as like this jungle um, and you know for those and other reasons there are stigmas that still exist about um, you know, our relationship to nature and how we engage uh, with the natural world um, that are kind of steeped in these troublesome stereotypes. So for me, yeah, writing a book about going camping, um, about really claiming some of the rituals around you know building a fire and and finding a worm to pierce mm-hmm. on a hook and cast a line and to and to cook your catch over an open flame these things are uh, a part of our story too but we don't see it uh, enough um and another important aspect of the book uh is about memory um the the nature walk that the father and the son are on was a nature walk that the father had taken with his dad when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so as they're walking through the forest and listening to the birds and the frogs, the father is telling his son, you know, Pop-Pop used to take me out to this very same spot. And, you know, sometimes when I just sit here on this log and close my eyes, I can still feel his presence. Like, and then, you know, the boy's like, you know, I miss him. And it's like, it's okay to feel. Like, um, you know, let it out, yeah. like I'm here. And and they're going through this uh, vulnerable remembering together. And that's another thing, um, I think, for men and for black men in particular that, um, that you don't see enough. There's a lot of, you know, toughen up, you know, like um, boys don't cry. There's a lot of stereotype around masculinity as strength means don't show emotion. And I think that has been, that narrative has been very harmful to men. We don't really know or have as many tools uh, with which to process our emotions. um, And that creates some weird pathologies with men. So 
a children's picture book that tells a kid it's okay to feel, I think is so important for boys especially. Yeah. Working with your mother as an adult, I love watching this from the outside. I love listening to it. Has it always been? I'm obviously it's not a perfect relationship because no relationship is, but what is your artistic synergy with your mom? Well, my mom is my mentor. She, um, you know, made the courageous choice um, after I was born, and I'm the youngest of three, to pursue a career in music at 30, you know, um, with three kids, like, under three, you know, back to back. Um, Sometimes, now, to be clear, I didn't realize this at the time. I'm just a baby. My mom, you know, she leaves the house. I don't know what she's doing for work. You know, it's just like... It was just her profession, but now as an adult, when I look back and I say, wow, you know, in, in 1980, you know, 88, 87, 86, 86 uh, when she was just getting started in her musical career, we were all very small kids, and there were narratives that she was dealing with about sure. the age at which um, a woman is in her prime. I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. here. <laughs> Um, there were there were things that she dealt with that were barriers t- to entry for her to start a career at that late in air quotes junction in her life, um, and I really admire the gall uh, to to look at the naysayers and say, nope, I'm doing a radical career shift right now to do what I love, mm-hmm. and um, you know whether I knew the particulars at the time or not. I think energetically I was absorbing that same mentality of, um, you know, follow your passions and uh, find something that you love to do, pour yourself into it. And, uh, you know, as her career um, took off and she was nominated for, you know, now six Grammy Awards, she was a world traveler, she took me on tour with her. I traveled with her to Japan. She took me to Finland and um, across the country, and I'm doing homework, you know, in the, during sound check. It's like I was saturated in this space. So both creatively and professionally, she showed me what it is to be an entrepreneur. She showed me what it is to be a businesswoman. She showed me what it is to be a full-time artist who makes her living on the wings of her music. Um, all of that was my blueprint growing up. And, um, you know, I've taken those lessons and observations and internalized them into my blueprint, you know, following in her footsteps. And uh, creatively, the dynamic is, you know, I'm in the children's space. She's a jazz vocalist, but I have training in jazz and was in a jazz band. Yeah. And, and she has like, uh, you know, aspirations in the in the children's space she has like an album that she wrote in 2020 that she just hasn't released yet she's like you know i worked on a children's album once i was like really (laughs) you know um so i I think that there was there was some natural overlap Mm -hmm. but on our album ancestors which just came out in may I um, love this album. Thank you. Love this album. As an adult without small children, I love this album. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And she brings her fullness as a jazz artist. Yeah. I bring my fullness in the children's space, and we found natural ways to to overlap the two. Yeah. Oh. So um, I did see something online where you just gave your love to LeVar Burton mm. and in the public broadcasting space. Just say something about that kind of role model 
And, you know, my connection was reading Rainbow mm -hmm. with LeVar. I wasn't a Star Trek person, but boy, yeah. like how did he impact your life growing up? Just seeing him and the kindness that he shared. I feel like we should give LeVar Burton some love here. Let's give LeVar, Bur LeVar Burton <laughs> some love. It is always time to give LeVar Burton some love. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, he showed me so many things. I think reading Rainbow and Star Trek and Roots, really, because right. before I before I really understood, um, you know, racism, very young age, my grandmother sat me down in front of a box. She had a box set of VHS tapes, <laughs> you know, of all of Roots. And she yeah. had us watching and making sure we understood. Really? Um, and, and that was my introduction to LeVar. And then when I saw him on Star Trek, it was like, whoa, that's the same guy from the thing that my grandma used to watch that I found so annoying, <laughs> you know, at the time. Like, I'm like, I'm trying to watch Sesame Street. Like, <laughs> why are we watching the Roots? But, you know, she was spoon feeding us this history. Like, she's gonna make sure you get your history. Um, but yeah, and reading Rainbow, he's just such a gentle spirit, a That's, gentle giant. Yeah. Um, and so I have uh, a lot of gratitude for um, the impact he he ha continues to have in in the space of uh, you know nurturing healthy black masculinity, uh, loving, educating, and inspiring all Americans and beyond. Uh, for decades, just the longevity of this man, all of it is admirable. Yeah. As a child, I had to, or as a, I guess I don't know when I first saw LeVar Burton, but I felt like I had to create a new category for him. Like he wasn't a father figure. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a brother figure. He wasn't like a teacher. Like he didn't look or represent like anything in my little life. Mm -hmm. And so he had like his own little space. Yeah. And, and that didn't turn out to be such a bad thing mm -hmm. for him to have his own little space. He didn't yeah. fit into any of the roles that in my mind I had created because of what I had seen and not seen. Um, but there he was. Yeah. Um, just remarkable. Have you met him? I have met him. I figured I have not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, LeVar Burton, interestingly, uh, last year at the Grammy Awards, my mother yeah. and I were both nominated. I was nominated for Best Children's Music Album. My mom was nominated for Best Jazz Vocal Album. And uh, we were at the pre-telecast, you know, because there's like the televised, they only do like 12 categories during the televised portion. Okay. Pre-televised is like six hours. That's when they do the smaller categories. And LeVar Burton was the host of the pre-telecast. So he got to introduce me and my mom. He mentioned my song. I've written a song inspired by and dedicated to LeVar Burton. He mentioned it. He introduced us, and we got to hang out backstage. We had a blast. I love that. Why don't you let me help you? You wear so many hats, we lost count. Why don't you take a break, put on this crown? We can help you do the work. You don't have to do it by yourself. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. We'll leave you now with music from Pierce Freelon's latest kids album. It's called Ancestors. And this song is for everyone feeling a bit overwhelmed with their to-do list right now. This is what we all want to hear. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening. Help heal your tender heart. Your strength is never in question. Hear me out, I have suggestions. When you're feeling overwhelmed, if you need a little help, the lesson in the song, you're not in this alone. If you have a tear to shed, here's a shoulder. 
wear so many hats we lost count why don't you take a break put on this crown we can help you do the work you don't have to do it by yourself that can make you go berserk just take a deep breath and relax we can help you with the work this is how you care for yourself it's good for your health we can help you do the work Everybody needs a hand now and then Work together, make it easy In the middle of a storm again Sometimes we get queasy Nobody knows What will when you're in trouble So let me help I, I'll be there on a double Never a task All you gotta do is ask If you have a titty shirt, here's a shoulder You wear so many hats, we lost count Why don't you take a break, put on this crown We can help you do the work You don't have to do it by yourself that could make you go berserk just take a deep breath and relax